This week's podcast brought to you by Recyclable Receptacles. And please stay tuned at the end of this podcast for a world premiere new song from Tom, Dick, and Harry called Nights in White Castle. The other night I was putting our eight-year-old to bed and I was laying down with her for a second and she said to me, didn't you say you had a bed this size in college? It's a twin bed. And she said, is everyone's bed this size? And I responded, yeah, in the dorms, everybody's bed is this size. And then she asked, even the principals? Saying says no pain, no gain, and we found that to be fact. The road might twist and turn a bit, but we all arrive intact. Mr. Mom and Mrs. Dad having each other's back. Day by day, just to keep it sane. Who's the ball and who's the chain? It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane. Hello. Bonjour. Kids start school this week, but I also see this week for me as my week between Phoenixes because I was in Phoenix a week ago. Next week, I have to go to Phoenix to do a WNBA game again. So this is my time between Phoenix. Um, But when I was in Phoenix for my last trip, uh, when we do these WNBA games, um, usually at the hotel, there's a packet left for us and it'll have game notes in there, a bunch of stats. Um, it's a pretty substantial packet of information that um, that we have. And when the game is over, the second the game is over, usually because other games are being played, the information in the in the folder is no longer valid. You know, you don't you don't need to keep it for anything. So anyway, and it and, it, and it's the information in the folder the is no folder. longer valid. It's no longer valid. It's no it's no longer up to date. You can't really use it anymore. So anyway, right after the game in Phoenix, um, headed to the airport, and uh, when I was in, I went to the airport. I had a little bit of time to kill, so I went to the Delta Club room. And I was in the Delta Club room, and I had my backpack. And the I had my folder of stats and information that I no longer needed, and it's it's no longer valid. It's no longer valid, and so it's no longer up to date, and so I didn't want to carry it on with me the the red eye home, and um, but I couldn't find a recycling a recycling receptacle. There was only trash, and I didn't certainly didn't want to put it in the trash because it was recyclable. But recycling receptacle. Yes, so I didn't want to carry it with me. So I just took it and I left it on the chair next to me, hoping that um, later on in the evening when somebody was tidying up the Delta Club, that they would have a recycling receptacle and could put this information in there. So anyway, I, I leave my folder there. It's purple folder. So it has the Phoenix Mercury logo right on it. I go out, go to my gate. Sitting at my gate right as they start boarding, and this is probably... 10 minutes after I've left the Delta Club, um, about to get on the plane. And this woman in her purple Delta outfit comes kind of rushing over from the Delta Club room and she's holding the folder and hands it to me and said, oh, you left this in the Delta Club. <laughs> so I could only, my only response, of course, was to be very appreciative. I said, oh, thank you so much. Couldn't tell her, yes, I meant to leave it in there. Thank Whew. you so much. That was a close one. That was, oof, yeah. So I, I took the folder. And uh, so I'm looking all around me in by my gate, and I can't find a recycling receptacle. 
And I'm not at a camp. I'm not going to put it in the trash. It's recyclable and you, material. You didn't want to tell the Delta woman, I'm sorry, but this material is no longer it's valid. no longer valid. No, I didn't. So as they start boarding the plane, and I don't have time because we're boarding. I don't have time to just go walk down the terminal to find an inevitable. Inevitably, there's a recycling receptacle somewhere. <laughs> so anyway. Now, the, now, when you say a recycling receptacle, you're talking about a receptacle for recyclables. That's what I mean. Yes, yes. Not, not a receptacle that itself can be recycled. So they board my uh, boarding group. So I leave the folder on in the, at the gate where I'm sitting. I leave it on my seat, again, hoping that later on that night when someone is going to the airport tidying up, they'll put this in the recycling. So I get on the plane. I sit down. And I don't know, maybe 25 minutes later, as they're still boarding this red-eye flight, this guy gets on the plane <laughs> with this big smile, very eager looking, and he like waves and gets my attention. I'm in the window seat, and I look up, and he hands me <laughs> this purple Phoenix Mercury folder, probably weighs five pounds, full of full of all of the invalid information information. invalid information that should be in a recyclable receptacle (laughs) yes he hands it to me and once again i can only be appreciative because in every other circumstance if i had left something an ipad anything else of course i would want it back and and you wouldn't get it back and i wouldn't get it back you're right so he hands it to me i'm very appreciative i take the freaking purple folder and i stick it in the seat pocket in front of me and when I landed in Detroit, which was where I was going through on my way home from Phoenix, I left it in the seat pocket in front of me, got off the plane. And normally I walk through the Detroit airport. This time I got on the people mover. I was moving as fast as I can <laughs> to get as far away from the purple folder as I could. And uh, before I got on my Hartford flight, I was just waiting for the thing to like be delivered by pigeons or something back to me. But um, my hope is that eventually it went from the seat pocket in front of me to a recycling receptacle. (laughs) I would be willing to bet that in the next six weeks or so, you get an envelope from ESPN. Somebody has mailed your invalid information there, (laughs) and they will then forward it to you at, at a Cost of about $72 in postage. Yeah, probably in a heck of a lot of, um, you know, fuel cost and everything that would have made it no longer worthwhile for me not to have put it uh, in the trash. But there's one other thing that happened while I was in Phoenix. I want to bring it up here. I was checking into the hotel. And when I was finished checking in, the woman, or as she was checking me in, said to me, is there a good number to reach you at while you're here? And I just looked at her and I said, Yes, my room number. Like, go ahead and call it. Like, everywhere you go now, they're trying to get your email. They're trying to get your cell phone number. Why? In, in what universe should would, have just would said, the hotel front desk need my cell number? If you need to reach me, call my room. When we were in San Diego, the bellman, very nice guy, gave me his cell phone and said, if you need anything while you're here, even if I'm not working, don't hesitate to text me. But he didn't ask you. For your cell phone number. Well, had I texted him, he would have my cell phone number. Well, that was very nice of him. But I am not giving my cell phone number to any hotel. Like, you know what would happen? I would leave my folder in my room and they would then call me so that they could mail it back to me. 
Well, my airport story, I was in Minneapolis this past week um, to launch Knights in White Castle. Thanks to everybody who came out to various events there. It's great. Saw a lot of podcast listeners, actually, um, including a woman who handed me in the signing line a printout of the Hardware Hank logo and the um, Red Owl logo together and suggested I go straight to the tattoo parlor and have that inked on me since I had mentioned that in a, in a previous you? podcast. I haven't noticed. Do you have any new tattoos since you came back from Minnesota? That's for you to find out. Right, okay. But, uh, but getting there, I took our two older daughters and we lived 10 minutes from the airport. And as soon as we left the car at the offsite parking and got on the bus, that commits ourselves now to the, to the national transportation system the digestive tract of the of the aviation system in America. As soon as we got on, I got a, a text from our airline saying that our flight would be delayed by a, an hour. Well, that wasn't that wasn't great, but whatever. It's, but it's that's sort of right too little in the time. middle. Yeah, because if it had been delayed two hours, easy enough. We live twelve minutes from the airport. You go back and get the car, but an hour, eh? You have to kind of suck it up and suck just it up. So we do. Gate. And in rapid succession, not so rapid succession, we got another notice that it was delayed another hour and then another hour. And by 3 p.m. for our flight that was supposed to leave at 12.15, Delta brought in 20 steaming hot, piping hot Domino's pizzas, set up a plastic table, set down 20 pizzas, um, sodas, airline snacks, and announced if you're on the Minneapolis flight and the Minneapolis flight only, help yourself to free pizza. And while the flight would be delayed another two and a half hours, and we ended up spending the day at the airport, I can't tell you how much those free pizzas did to pacify me, to placate me, to soothe the agitated passengers at a cost of probably 180 bucks to the airlines. But um, it was it was interesting to me how easily bought off we were and and it's not a complaint it was well, a nice gesture because people are a lot more grumpy when they're hungry and it was a nice gesture it was a human gesture that was the thing it was like there was a human being offering you hot food and there was no more comforting and human gesture than that feeling bad that you have been inconvenienced well, i don't know that they felt way. bad or it wasn't nobody's fault at the least. gate but um well the, the interesting thing is how the delay was doled out because like i said we live 12 minutes from but the it, airport it was the classic creeping delay right, we've all experienced that you know but if of course if you had known there's going to be a five-hour delay you would have come home you would have spent an you know, re- enjoyable or perhaps not enjoyable, but still at home four hours before heading back to the airport. Absolutely. But my favorite thing of that whole experience, and it would be hard to pick just one favorite thing of sitting at the airport for six hours, was uh, two of the four restrooms on that terminal at Bradley are being renovated. So they're drywalled off with a sign saying, you know, we're doing this for your future enjoyment. As a result, there's only one men's room and one women's room on that terminal farthest possible place from the Delta Gate. And so when I went there, there was a long line for the men's room. And I know this is standard for the women's room, but we're not used to it in the men's room, waiting in line to use the uh, one of the four urinals, one of which is at the low height and the three of which are not. And so when you leave the restroom, there's have you seen these things? There's a little plas- four plastic buttons with emojis on them, a real smiley face, a less smiley face, a frowny face, and then a red angry face. Plastic buttons, or is it like a touch screen, a video touch screen? It's not screen. video touch screen. It's plastic buttons, just okay. as I've described them. No, I haven't. And, uh, well, they're outside the women's room as well. And when I was leaving, 
uh, you know, my hands dripping because while I washed them, I certainly wasn't waiting in line to dry them with the air dryer. The guy ahead of me in passing these emojis and it says, you know, right. How did we do? How was, how was the, the ambiance? That's the word they used. Yes. In our restroom. <laughs> okay. And so the guy in front of me walked past this and kind of looked and noticed, did a double take. And he, with his uh, index finger and middle finger, using that as a battering ram, he bang, he banged the uh, the red angry emoji. And then he took like a, a tentative step forward. And then he, he gave it another punch of the angry emoji. And, and what I loved about that was these things can't possibly be hooked up to anything. Nobody's monitoring. You know, there may be a guy behind, <laughs> right. you know, a, a mirrored glass saying, um, laughing at that. But, uh, you know, it's like the walk or don't walk sign. It's just it's just something for you to do while you're waiting for the light to change. Well, one thing I'm certainly not doing after I've used the public restroom and washed my well, hands well, of course. is touching something. I don't even like, like, that's one of the beauties of the Delta Club. This is this is one of the few places I've seen this is the restroom there. When you're leaving the restroom, there's this really tall door and then there's this metal plate for your foot that you use to open the door because they know you've just washed your hands they're clean you don't want to then grab the handle of a bathroom door that has been grabbed by a bunch of, of hands that have of course been you flush with your shoe sole yeah, you then, you work this, the faucet with your elbows but can you think of any other you head about the door to leave this this thing on the door that you can use your foot to open the door anyway so if i'm leaving that restroom at bradley airport I'm not pressing any button are you kidding and it's it's too high, I'm sure, for you to kick with your foot. That guy probably would have tried in his angry stupor. And then my only other airport story from that uh, wonderful trip was uh, returning. Our return flight was at 9 a.m. from MSP. And the uh, gentleman and lady, the lady sitting directly in front of me, she was probably 80. And she, uh, when, she recl- when I was leaning forward to, to uh, catch some Zs, she fully reclined like three quarters of the way through the flight. So it caught me off guard and I, and I muttered some uh, reflexive expletive as she did. And she, she uh, looked through the crack and said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I said, no, you have nothing to be sorry about. I was just leaning forward. It caught me by surprise. You're fine. And, uh, and I noticed, I couldn't help but notice that she was drinking canned sangria. They sell sangria in a can? The flight attendant had the same question. I think they had gotten it. They had they had gotten it on board. Not uh, they had not gotten it on board. They had brought it on board. It was a brand called Begonia Sangria. I saw the can. I didn't think you were allowed to bring your own alcoholic beverages onto a. Flight. Nor did I. I don't think the flight attendant realized that either. But it was maybe she didn't realize Sangria was, or maybe it's Virgin Sangria. I possibly don't know, it wasn't Virgin Airlines. <laughs> um, okay, so Sangria in a can sounds delicious. School starts this week, at least in these parts. School starts this week, and um, that means last week we were uh, doing some school shopping with our kids, and our oldest daughter, as part of her school uniform, can wear the slip-on Vans sneaker shoes, skateboard shoes. They have to be either white or a single color. Anyway. They can't be the classic checkerboard black and white Vans of our collective imagination that's right um but we because she needed to do some back to school shopping we found we were at the mall we don't ever really go to the mall but we were there and it was obvious and still yet 
for me a surprise. The 80s and 90s are back in a huge way, style-wise. Last year on this podcast, we talked a ton about, you know, fanny packs. Well, of course, fanny packs are everywhere now. Um, I proudly own a couple fanny packs, even though it drives our kids nuts when I wear them. But we're we're in the store, and there's all different styles of... Um, 80s i'm sorry all different styles of acid wash jeans like jean shorts you know mom of course, jeans mom high rise jeans, jeans all different ones in acid wash which is something i never thought would come the back. colorful like blocks squared blocks yes. of color on 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 a kind of uh, nylon like the total uh, tracksuit reebok yeah. tracksuit thing is back the brand champion ha- has completely come back the sweatshirts um that we wore when we were kids and um, vans are back in a massive way oh, and, and and you got me it kind of as a as a parting gift for the book tour because the book is set in the 80s uh checkerboard vans velcro wallet which of course was which know, i love and days in, in the heyday in the 80s anytime and 90s, i go to pay for something now it's with the sound of ripping velcro and and uh, it's awesome it's um i mean i'm just I don't know why I'm surprised. I think just because there were certain things from that era that were so horrible, and I think acid wash was one of them. In many ways, the most horrible stuff is what's back. Right. Because that's what set it apart right. as, as 90s fashion. Right. But not, was, not grunge, not like the flannel shirts and stuff. I'm talking about the uh, sort of in-living color, color me bad, yeah. whatever, chunky tracksuit stuff. And it's all the stuff um, It's all the stuff that our, our daughter wants. But um, I was fascinated to um to see all of that and uh and one thing that is i don't know if this is from the 80s i think it's more from the 70s or before and i don't think it's coming back but i did see one throwback and this was also a week ago and i was we were in the car i was in the car with our younger two our eight-year-old daughter and our 10-year-old son and we were driving we're gonna be in the car for a couple hours and um right before we were getting on the highway there was a guy i'd say he was in his 40s ish standing there and he was hitchhiking he had his thumb out hitchhiking and you don't ever see at least around here people hitchhiking anymore and our kids were fascinated and so i was explaining to them because why is that guy standing there with his thumb out so i explained to them and then you saw he was waving a packet of phoenix mercury information (laughs) right he tracked me down um but they're asking what what that was about and i was telling them how you know when my dad um, was dating my mom he would frequently hitchhike from connecticut a couple hours to massachusetts to visit her and then he would hitchhike back you know my dad did the same thing as knoxville tennessee he would hitchhike to cincinnati to see my mom yeah like it was not an uncommon thing then but a really really uncommon thing now to the point where if it was really sweet because probably an hour after we'd pass this guy and we're driving on the highway and I hear our eight-year-old from the back in the minivan say, um, do you think that guy's thumb is still out? And I didn't at first realize what she meant. Do you think that guy's thumb is still out or do you think somebody's picked him up? And then I told her, you know, I don't know. He, I'm sure he's probably gotten picked up by now. And then at near the end of our ride, now the, the sun's gone down. It's like 8.30 at night. We've It's been at least two hours since we passed the hitchhiker. And again, this this sweet little voice from the back of the car, with, and there was a ton of concern in her voice. And she said, Mom, it's dark. What if that guy's thumb is still out? And uh, <laughs> I just thought that was the sweetest thing. And she will remember that probably forever. And, and who knows if she'll ever see another guy with his thumb out like that and you said you consoled her by saying no i'm sure he has either 
murdered somebody or been murdered by now. Yeah, that was what I said. <laughs> and of course, the reason that I was just with our youngest two and uh, and not with you was because you were in Minneapolis at the time. You had taken our older two out there for um, for your book event. The, the book came out, of course, on August 20th, Nights in White Castle. Uh, you since have come back here to Connecticut and did an event at RJ Julia in Middletown. So thank you to all of because you said there's a lot of uh, podcast listeners, right? A lot of that podcast listeners, yes. So thanks to everybody who came out, who has bought or read the book. And um, I have to say, in Minneapolis at Majors and Quinn, um, a friend of my brother Tom's showed up, although I didn't realize who it was at the time. I was speaking, and he was standing in the corner in a crowded bookstore. And uh, he had a, a White Castle hat on, and he was carrying a crave case of 30 sliders and sliders with vinyl. So that smell permeated uh, the entire this entire bookstore and, and was frankly driving me crazy. Um, during, Did you end up eating one of the I sliders? I ended up eating two of them, but not until Is I was done with the whole thing two hours after it started. Do they call it a crave case? They do call it a crave case. It? it comes in a crave. It comes in a case. I, I took a picture of the book many? sitting 30. And and you've told you told the story on the, um, a previous podcast about Jim and his his buddy Fluff dref- dressing up in their outfits and yeah, going. We have since well, that's the introduction of the book. And Jim, uh, too late for me to include in the book, but just this past week, he dug up a photograph from that fateful night where where he and his buddy Fluff dressed up as White Castle workers, and I have it, nineteen seventy nine. Lincoln well, High School seniors. Too late to put in the book, but not too late to put on our Instagram. So well, be, I'll, let me ask Jim if he's okay with if, that. If, if we so, get I permission will. from Jim, um, you'll know because I will then put it on our Instagram, which is at Ball and Chain Podcast. But while, while I was on the road, uh, I, I, every once in a while, I type into my phone notes uh, mode on my phone some some single sentence, or oftentimes I don't remember what it was I was referring to to mention on the podcast and. I'm just looking at it now, and uh, I have five-hour flight delay with, with 20 free pizzas. I have restroom emojis. I have canned sangria. We've discussed all this. Uh, and I have you saying to me sometime in the last week, you smell nice. Did you shower recently? <laughs> well, always, all, you know, the first blade lifts, the second blade cuts. It's uh, there's always the, the compliment always has a... Uh, except that there was no... Um there was no hidden agenda there. It was all. It was very the sincere. recently that that was really it was very kind of, sincere. Uh, you did smell. You didn't nice. mean recently, like in the last ten minutes. You meant like recently in the last ten days. No, but, but I meant in the last ten hours. Possibly, but the, the what I'm getting at is we also have. I have a note here that says egg distribution. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Well, explain for our viewers. Well, it has nothing to do with my fertility. The egg distribution is. You don't. You sometimes make eggs for the kids for breakfast, and uh, frequently, and we we go through a ton of eggs in this house. So I buy the the eighteen carton of eggs, and I took the eggs out the other day to to make some eggs, and um, the egg distribution was very different from how it is when I have been the previous one to use. Let's say we have an eighteen pack carton of eggs, right? And you've used twelve of them, right? That means there will be six of them. All six of them will be at one end of the carton one, in two, neat three, little rows. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I'll have them in even rows. And so when I when I go to take the eggs out of the fridge, right, the the the, the carton will be wildly imbalanced, and right. and um, I may hold it from the empty end, and now the, the it's teetering 
uh, top heavy at the at the loaded end. So when I took it out, there were seven eggs left, and they were just distributed all throughout the carton. Which I, I do just... that. I do that to stabilize to to disperse the weight. I've, I'm no which... structural engineer, but I know that if the weight is evenly distributed, then it's there's less of a chance of them the, the carton falling open or eggs. You know, which tumbling it, out in a in a disaster, which makes complete sense. I just it never, the thought never came to my mind that you had given a second's thought to it. I just assumed, like with many things that involve you, that you would have just while you were making eggs, randomly grabbed eggs out of the carton and then redistributed and then, the others randomly around. No, the carton. and then just left the other ones randomly in in the carton. There's no part of me that assumed that you had done that intentionally and with a real purpose behind it and um now that i hear that i'm actually proud of you well it took thought i didn't think you put any thought into that but my my even though and even though that makes complete sense my brain's need for organization will still continue to put all of the eggs in a row i will have all my eggs in a row i don't care if my ducks are in a row but all of my eggs will be in a row also in the carton. all of your eggs will be in one basket <laughs> right and uh but if anyone has it's lost at this point what we're talking about i posted two pictures again on our instagram that will that will explain it well speaking as we've been speaking this podcast about the the 80s and the 70s and the 90s um, we have a lot of mail this week about that simpler more more delinquent filled time and so let's get to viewer mail, shall we? We shall. Big bad look, throw our lure, reel us in with your viewer mail. I like the header on this first viewer mail. It says, Steve is right. 70s and 80s teens did whatever they wanted. All right, let's hear more. Any, any header that begins Steve is right. So this is to uh, ballandchainpod at gmail.com. It comes from Jacqueline with a C and a Q. She writes, great pot as usual. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin in the 70s and 80s. Madison is an educated upper middle class college town full of, quote, good kids that come from, quote, nice families. I went to a highly ranked public high school with kids whose parents were professors and administrators. Kids smoked cigarettes right outside the door. 13-year-olds could buy cigarettes anywhere outside of Utah. I went to punk rock shows at bars at 15. One senior class let loose a greased pig on senior prank day. Drinking and weed was excessive and the norm. Shoplifting, trespassing, fistfights, partying, and general teenage hijinks that might seem shocking today was nothing out of the ordinary then. It was a kids-will-be-kids era. Most of us made it out at the other end to become productive members of society. Steve is not exaggerating. It really was the norm. At a hell of a time, great pod. Keep up the good work. JP. Well, there you go. Well, I think a lot of it was just because your your parents were just so happy to have you not in the house. They didn't really care where you were. Well, I right? was doing almost era. none of this stuff. No, but, I'm just saying parents right. in general of that era yeah. was get out of the house. And then so when kids were out of the house, they were going to be... An impulse that we understand. Doing stuff. But yeah, exactly. and there's not nearly enough of this in viewer mail or in the world at large. Uh, Jacqueline follows up with a, a chart and or graph a color chart from the Washington Post. Teen drinking peaked in the late 70s and early 80s is the headline. And in fact, it did. It shows um, teen drinking, a percent of high school seniors who drank alcohol in the past 30 days. It was uh, at an all-time high, it looks like, in 1981, 82. Between 1975 and 1982, it was an all-time high. It is um, uh, essentially half, half as many in 2015 when this chart and graph was published. So, but we've got a lot of uh, stories of, the, here's uh, this this uh, 
from Tom is headlined Teenage Delinquency. And this is not from Tom, your brother Tom. In fact, he signs his email, Tom, parentheses, not your brother Tom, in Annandale, Virginia. Rebecca and Steve, I was inclined to agree with Rebecca's point in a recent podcast that the tales of youthful indiscretion, including in Knights in White Castle, did not typify teens' behavior of the era, which I also spent in advanced adolescence in the Twin Cities area. Then I remembered, writes Tom, then I remembered the unfortunate fellow who made the ill-fated choice to park his convertible across 58th Street from our South Minneapolis house, whose yard contained a tree that produced a copious annual crop of tiny, rapidly rotting crab apples. And I have to interject here as Steve that our house had the same crab apple tree with tiny, rotting crab apples that were always used as projectiles. But you did not have the convertible. Well, this is what would have happened if somebody had. Okay. My pals and I whiled away the afternoon seeing how many of those apples we could throw into the car's interior from a distance. While our percentage was low, our commitment to the effort resulted in my mother having to endure an enraged critique of her child-rearing abilities at the front door after the gentleman the gentleman returned to his vehicle <laughs> filled with rotten crab apples. Also, he, Tom remembers, the feeling of sheer terror I felt in the back seat as the speedometer on my friend's father's sedan hit 65 miles per hour on Lindale and 35th, roughly twice the speed limit. Also, the look, a mixture of confusion, curiosity, and extreme disapproval, on onlookers' faces during a different joyride as the same sedan jumped the curb near Washburn High School and began to traverse at turf-ripping speed the lawn between the school and Ramsey Junior High on the other side of the block. I know exactly where that is. If indeed yours was aberrant behavior, I must confess, writes Tom, that I experienced my share of it as well. Well, there you go. You you experienced none of this in high school. My one foray into... uh aberrant behavior was um, the high school I went to, Southwick-Tolland Regional High School. There's a big hill outside of the high school and you walk down the hill to get the athletic fields and you also walk down the hill during graduation. And it was a tradition there that you would burn into the grass your year of graduation. So my year of graduation was 91. So the kids, one night after dark, you would go there and I wasn't the one who was the uh, had the experience with arson, but somebody would, and you would light it on fire and burn in the 91. And anyway, while we were doing that, the police came, and I remember just sprinting into the woods as like police were chasing us, and um, and thinking at the time as you know, like you sprint away and stopped with a group of people catching your breath, how much fun it was. <laughs> To be being chased by the police, doing something you weren't supposed to be doing and getting away with it. But You weren't thinking, my... as I always did in those situations, that this was going to go down on my permanent record? No, I wasn't thinking that. I was. I remember just thinking, this is really, really fun. Um, and the, poli- the, police, was... the police just saw shadows running away. And we, we knew it was a 6'4 girl from Southwick High School, but we, we, can't, we can't identify who it was <laughs> exactly. And the, uh, actually, one of my good friends um, works as a teacher at Southwick. Holland Regional High School now. And she asked me, she said, when you graduated, um, did you still, you know, come down um, the hill? And I said, yeah. And anyway, I, I don't think the kids still burn the year in. I think they spray painted it or something. I think those those lovely arson days are, are behind but us. But at the time you graduated, fire was the only tool available to you. Right? <laughs> right. There was no spray paint. In well, this days. is from Steve, not me, but another Steve from the Twin Cities area. I grew up in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, at a time when we were literally on the edge of the northward creep of housing developments in the late 60s and early 70s. Our neighborhood was overrun with kids, and our White Castle was on the corner of Zane Avenue and Brooklyn Boulevard, open 24 hours a day. It was very often our meeting place, shining as it did like a beacon in the night while we caroused, mostly unsupervised, first on our bikes and later behind the wheels of or in the backs of crappy loud cars. Exactly what Knights in White Castle is about. 
Steve writes, we were all good students, active in sports, but prone to mischief. I'll send more stories in the future, but Steve's account of the fire extinguishers sent me down memory lane while driving this morning. We too had a collection of water-filled fire extinguishers, which we had literally purchased from the annual property auction held by the Brooklyn Park Police. (laughs) So they purchased these from the police. Uh, We would fill them with water, then take them to the local gas station to pressurize them, and the night's antics would begin. Our favorite targets were the smokers lined up outside the arcade at Village North Shopping Center, but given that we often spent time aimlessly driving around our stomping grounds, virtually anyone could be fair game, including drive through attendants. Looking back, I'm amazed we never got chased by any other cars, but we treated ourselves to hours of what we deemed good fun throughout our high school years. Anyway, I'm not sure if you have a resident correspondent from any of the northern suburbs of the Twin Cities, though I no longer live there, much of who I am was formed there, and I'd be delighted to report in occasionally, as it may seem fitting, depending on the topic, keep up the good work, works, regards. Steve, Steve, you are now our northern suburbs of the Twin Cities correspondent, and Steve adds as a PS, and this is, he already had me at hello, but he writes, Steely Dan's Asia might just be the most perfect eight minutes ever put to vinyl, and, and he's absolutely right there. I mean, I, you know, I play that LP frequently here. I actually get to read one of the viewer mails. I uh, usually don't do this, but... Oh, only because you're four feet across the room, and it would be too far for me to walk over and hand them to you. <laughs> so this is from Bob in Huntersville, North Carolina, and it's addressed to me. Dear Rebecca, perhaps Steve's stories from the lightly supervised 70s and 80s are more common than you realize. After seeing a segment on Late Night where David Letterman used a fire extinguisher to propel himself in a rolling office chair... I was inspired to have a little fun with an extinguisher while visiting a friend at a certain Catholic university in Olean, New York. What Catholic university Saint is that? St. Bonaventure. St. Bonnie. He's a Bonnie. Oh, he, he, wanted to, he wanted to conceal that song. Okay. So that's why we're saying it. Right. Rather than hosing down innocent bystanders, I only hosed the dorm room, hallway, and hairy legs of a friend. The yellow powdery contents of the extinguisher covered everything, and we were asked to leave. I now wonder if there are any people uh, who went to college or high school in the 80s who didn't have hijinks with a fire extinguisher. No, but I didn't go to college in the 70s or 80s, so I'm disqualified from that. Well, hello, Rebecca and Steve, writes uh, Matt. A couple of quick thoughts while waiting to dig into Knights in White Castle, which amazingly was delivered a day early. First, I may or may not have had a friend in the very early 90s who had a brother that attended UConn. This friend's brother may or may not have stolen a fire extinguisher from his dorm that expended water, not chemicals, that ended up in my friend's possession. We may or may not have driven around town squirting unsuspecting citizens with water on occasion. In the 90s, at UConn, imagine that. Imagine that. You know what we have in our house? You probably don't even know this. Do you know that we have a fire extinguisher in our house? I do not. Go on. I'm fascinated. We have a fire extinguisher in our house, in the kitchen, in case there's ever any kind of a kitchen fire. And And one of our 27 fire uh, alarms goes off, smoke alarms. And I don't actually know exactly how to use it. I think you just squeeze the handle. But if there's ever fire, I will get the fire extinguisher. I will give it to you. And hopefully our son hasn't already depleted it of all of its contents. And and you can put out the fire. Speaking of our fire detectors, our kids the other day opened a drawer where we keep um, some games and cards and that sort of thing, um, board games. And I asked our son if a certain board game was in there. This is while you were in Minneapolis. He said, no, but there's a fire detector. There's a smoke smoke detector in here. Because it would have been chirping, and I would have stuck it in the drawer to make it stop chirping. Yes, you put it, you take the battery out. And And it keeps chirping. The smoke detector keeps chirping, so you put it in the drawer until it's done chirping, which may be an hour. Then you take it out of the drawer, and you put the battery in, and you replace the smoke detector. You just left it in the drawer. 
have, this makes us no safer. Have there been any fires in the game's drawer <laughs> since then? Where does it... I think it goes in the basement, though. We need to... I have since... Since you originally put that in there, which was weeks ago, I've purchased 9-volt batteries. Will you do the, me that favor today of putting the 9-volt battery in that smoke detector n- and not returning it to the game's drawer, but then putting it back wherever the heck it goes? Will you do that for I, me? I will do that if you remind me. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yo, writes Josh. Josh in Wyoming. We haven't heard from him in a while. Uh, I completely agree with Steve uh, that this kind of behavior in the 70s and 80s was normal. And I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, writes Josh. Maybe it's a boy thing, but all of this, all of that sounded normal to me. Not necessarily, not necessarily smart, but definitely normal. I will share a story with you. I was a freshman coming home from basketball practice in the fall. We lived 45 miles from town, so I usually rode home with a friend. On this particular night, there were four of us in the pickup, and like any fall in Montana, there are lots of deer in the roadways. I decided that the next deer we saw, I was going to, ju- I was going to jump out and tackle it. Oh, good heavens. Okay. Seems like a... Thing you do so as a freshman, unsafe. right? Yeah. Sure enough, we saw some in the headlights. My buddy started slowing down, and I opened the door to get ready to jump out. My buddy, sitting in the middle seat, couldn't stand the suspense, and at around 15 miles per hour said, Now! and shoved me out the door. Don't try this at home, kids. I hit the ground running and was taking strides that only the two of you could relate to. They had to be 8 to 10 feet in length. It was all I could do to keep from falling. As I looked up, I found the deer, and it raised its head from eating. I was really going fast. I opened my arms to tackle the deer, and this feat was as good as done when all of a sudden everything went black. I woke up on my back, and my friends were circled around me looking concerned. I couldn't breathe and was really in some pain. You don't say. Tell me more. When I finally sat up, the laughter commenced, and I found myself with a reflector pole between my feet. In my haste to tackle the deer, I failed to notice the reflector pole that was between me and my roadside trophy. I hit it going as fast as I could and had a Phillips screw head mark on my sternum for several days. I just assumed the deer had, like, kicked him. Have you seen the video? I showed it to our kids of the deer who's at the edge of the pond drinking, and all of a sudden the alligator or crocodile springs out, and you see this deer with its unbelievable dexterity and quickness just jump away. If you haven't seen it, I'll try to see if I can find it and repost it on our Twitter feed. Um, but So are you suggesting that J- Josh had not been... Uh, uh, intercepted by the reflector that left him as he said his parents were not impressed when he showed up at the house covered in gravel that that the deer would have leapt away anyway i'm guessing eluded his grasp a a lot of difficulty catching the deer how great would it have been if if it was josh from wyoming emerged from the pond covered in algae (laughs) to grab the deer that's a meme i would like to see yes okay to our non-juvenile delinquent segment of viewer mail Ralph writes, it seems to me, Rebecca, that if you're going to play basketball, you're going to get banged up no matter what your size is. Whether bigs get a disproportionate share of bangs is still an open question to me. Ms. Lobo and Ms. Robinson, LaChina, did not comment, this is one of your games you've done recently, on their experiences as bigs, and I'm not sure if Ms. Peters at 6'2 is considered a big. You should also get the views of some smalls on the matter. Becky Hammond and Carol Lawson come to mind. Uh, Officials seem to get blamed for everything, and I do not limit that to those on the court. I agree that players should be protected and compensated, but I also do not see a financial model that will sustain the latter. Rebecca, your comment on is it only bigs who are getting uh, the brunt of of, uh, the non-calls or are smalls? What's the perspective of the smalls? We're probably asking... This is in response to, I was a guest on the China Robinson's Around the Rim podcast that she hosts, and now Devereaux Peters is a co-host with her, and we had this conversation about uh, about the officiating in the WNBA and after the Brittany Griner, um, the fight that involved Brittany Griner. And we were saying that 
sometimes the bigs because they can handle more they 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 their opponents get called for fewer fouls and and what i should say is it's the biggest of the bigs i wouldn't even consider myself one of those it'd be Brittany Griner at 6'8", Liz Cambage at 6'8", maybe Sylvia Fowles, who's 6'6", but just has this you know, incredibly strong physique. Um, so, And I think the littles would even agree to it, that those particular players get beaten up more than most because they can, uh, they can handle it. Well, I'm not sure. I don't remember what specifically on the podcast Billy Gallagher is replying to here, Billy with two L's, but I, I do love that he sent this in. In fact, there was, writes Billy, in the early 2000s, a TV show called LAX. It oh, because I had said I can't believe there hasn't been a television show that's been set at oh, an airport. well, then, then, he, then he's this re- is what he's telling Billy, us. Billy, with two L's, unlike you, Steve, with one V, he listens to what I say, so I know exactly what he's responding to. But two E's. To. <laughs> Please, Billy, with continue. two L's, writes... In fact, there was in the early 2000s a TV show called LAX. It was a CSI-style procedural drama set at LAX airport that told the stories of the issues that come up day-to-day at a major international airport. It got canceled after just one short season of 13 episodes, presumably because the average traveling public really doesn't actually want to know what happens behind the scenes at the airport when they're not there. And in fact, having spent the day at the airport... I, I would have liked to have known less about what was going on than I did while I was there, Rebecca. No, the part of, if there was another show, LAX, that I would have wanted to see was um, heard Sue Bird and um, Megan Rapino talking about this right after the women's national team got back from um, winning the, the World Cup. I think the ESPYs were soon after that. And the day after the ESPYs, Megan was supposed to fly out of LAX and a bunch of her teammates Um, were at the airport already and they texted her and said, you cannot come here. It is just, there are so many people here waiting for you. You'll never make it into the airport. You will never make it to your gate. Like you just can't come. So I think somehow uh, Megan's agent got involved and I'm sure this is what all of the agents of, you know, super celebrities out in LA do as well. But there's a whole separate place where they go so i guess it's sort of like an airplane hangar near the airport but not on the airport and sue was talking about how you go there you get your own room uh they they put out all different kinds of food and beverage you hang out there and then when it's time for you to get on your flight someone comes picks you up drives you you get your own separate um security that you go through and then you while everyone is on the jet bridge getting on the plane you literally they have stairs that they drive you right to the stairs and you walk up the stairs and get on your plane so that you don't have to deal with the ordinary people (laughs) almost (laughs) certainly uh, why i got 20 free pizzas um at bradley (laughs) the other day but lax starred heather locklear and blair underwood 2004 2005 season and guest starred in one of those 13 episodes tony hawk as himself. So perhaps Tony Hawk was playing one of these uh, VIP hangar Super types. celebs in the, in the hangar. Yeah, I would, I would be interested. We should go back and see if that if LAX can be found on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or what other, <laughs> other ones would it be on? I don't know. Speaking of LA, this next uh, email, and this comes to uh, ballandchainpod at gmail.com the, the header on it reminds me of Los Angeles for some, the header is urinal heights urinal heights urinal heights well this this is the second time in our podcast it's coming up right. you already mentioned the little urinal it comes up frequently but 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 it doesn't remind me of LAX there's a, there's a neighborhood in LA called Boyle Heights yes and you know there are 
suburbs of the Twin Cities that I think of Columbia Heights, Invergrove Heights, anything that ends in Heights sounds to me like a suburban enclave. Mm-hmm. Urinal Heights being probably the least attractive of those of all of those real estate possibilities. Yeah. But I don't think that's what this is about. Let's see. Alex writes, Rebecca and Steve, love your podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to the book launch at Majors and Quinn next week. That happened. This came in before that. I was listening to an older podcast recently in your discussion or discovery for Rebecca of urinals and the one short urinal. It's presumably required by code and intended for children, shorter people, uh, etc. My wife and I were recently in Morocco and encountered a situation you might find interesting. My observation was that men in Morocco are of average height. I've been to Morocco. I didn't notice any uh, dis- I have nothing to dis- no reason to dispute that. Uh, neither unusually tall nor unusually short. I'm a taller guy at 6'6". A restroom I used in the Marrakesh Air- Airport, which is quite modern, offered four urinals all the same height. None of them short. Most curious was that each was positioned extremely high, so that, without going into too much detail, even I could just barely use it. He's 6'6", understand. I'm pretty sure any guy below six feet would need a step stool. I happen to be in there alone, but it made me want to stick around and watch how other people handle this. Of course, this is the same vacation in which my wife entered a public park restroom only to be required to pay a seemingly random number of coins to a male bathroom attendant in order to be handed a few squares of toilet tissue. Um, writes Alex, okay. Well, I'm, I'm pleased that my youngest son is now tall enough to be able to use the short urinal without any contact issues. All the best, Alex from St. Paul. Thank you, Alex. So if you, since I've never used a urinal, if you, if you encountered urinals that were too, too high for you... Tiptoes. Well, or I mean, would it be extra messy to um, to have a little arc and a good trajectory like well, that, you do that's on what's your? Uh, what you would need, yeah. Like on a on a good jump shot. You would. You would require that. Okay. Just but curious. you would require a constant uh, pressure to maintain that that arc and velocity. Okay. Okay. Alex didn't want to go into too much detail. Now we have done exactly Way what he too wanted much to detail. do. <laughs> Just a couple more viewer mails here, and I should say. Uh, please, I should have mentioned this earlier, please stick around because our closing theme today is going to be a new song from Tom, Dick, and Harry to commemorate. Well, I mean, it's, it's a great song on its own. It's a great original song. I think their best work yet, but it's Knights in White Castle related. The song is named Knights, Knights in White, White Castle. Castle, and we will play it in its entirety at the end of the podcast. And it marks the debut of the Tom, Dick, and Harry horn section. They have a horn section. I mean, awesome. it's it's Can't it's, wait to hear it's it. awesome. So, a couple more viewer mails first. Sharknado on Cape Cod writes Margaret. Certainly has been an interesting summer on the Cape. Sharks and tornadoes equals Sharknado. Now we are frequent visitors to Cape Cod, and and it is about the sharkiest place on earth right now. This yeah, is I, me, I Steve, have, speaking. I have the Sharktivity app, and almost every day there's an alert that one of the beaches has had a shark sighting. Usually there's multiple alerts per day. And this is something that is very, a definitely a recent phenomenon. And Margaret writes, my shark activity app pings a few times a day. Beaches now have emergency call boxes, tourniquet stations, and new shark warning signs. And in fact, as you and I know, when you pull into the parking lot, they hand you a flyer on shark safety, which says things like, don't go in above your knees, don't, don't splash, all the things that people are uh, unlikely to observe when going into the ocean. The ocean on a hot day, right. Anyway, she, she uh, writes of tornadoes as a new phenomenon, though. And, and um, this story made me think of Steve for some reason, writes Margaret. I was watching TV around 11 p.m. one night after my husband had gone to bed upstairs. An emergency alert warning came on, and I assumed it was simply a test. Aren't they always a test in Massachusetts? 
However, the alert indicated that there was a tornado warning in our area, and they recommended that people seek shelter in a safe location like their basement. Now, your dad was out on the Cape when the tornado happened, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Obviously, writes Margaret, I went upstairs, woke my husband, and told him about the alert. His response? Uh, Do you want me to come down? (laughs) Really? No, I actually came up to tell you so you could go back to sleep. Rebecca, help me here. Should I be surprised by my husband's response? I was concerned for his safety, warned him, and yet his response was not one of acknowledgement or, or appreciation. But my husband reminds me of Steve at times with his selective listening. This time he heard me and still didn't react with any urgency. As you probably know, three tornadoes did end up touching down on the Cape. Rebecca, would you be surprised if Steve replied in the same way? I know you wouldn't reply in the same way because you're from the Midwest and and you grew up with tornadoes being a very real thing and a real concern. Yeah, but this is at night when I'm asleep. No, yes, but this is this is kind of my point though. I grew up here, where in in New England, where there weren't tornadoes. I mean, I was terrified of tornadoes from watching The Wizard of Oz, um, but there weren't a real fear. We never had tornado warnings. So as an adult now, say a couple of years ago, if you had come up and said there's a tornado warning and woke me and said there's a tornado warning, I might have blown it off. But since last year, when there was a tornado that touched down not far from our house, there were warnings. Our entire family was in the corner of the basement as this baseball, softball size hail was raining down on our house and the surrounding areas and a tornado touched down very near to us. And for the first time in my life, this sort of obscure threat became very real. If I came to wake you, I think both of us would hop out of bed quickly and sprint to the basement after that experience we had last year because that was pretty terrifying. Absolutely. And if you had woken me seven or nine or 11 years ago and said, Steve, the baby is crying, what would my reaction have been? I did do that. I, I, I remember like waking you the baby is crying and, and i you fled would just, post haste to would, the nursery you literally to the baby. would roll over and continue snoring getting up in the middle of the night we we both admit getting up in the middle of the night was something i did 99 percent well, of the time that is on you, you for not waking me effectively <laughs> that was my fault well first that the baby wouldn't have awakened you um but it was impossible for me to do so i realized that battle was one i was not going to win but uh but a tornado i think uh I think we would both be cowering in the basement, hopefully remembering to wake up the children and bring them to the basement with us. Uh, Last viewer mail before we get to Tom, Dick, and Harry. Um, Robert writes, uh, Rebecca and Steve, three things. One, thanks, Steve, for reminding me that my mobile entertainment suite, iPad, hanging over the steering wheel, is not the only way to pass time while waiting for AAU practices to end. I've read four books this summer, one of which was Stingray Afternoons. This is part of my challenge my challenge my reading initiative to to try to get off my phone when i'm waiting around for practices to end and start reading books absolutely how many books are you are you probably read uh around 30 books in 2019 it's pretty good it's pretty good two there is still hope for the good for the good old days while walking into burger king i saw four stingrays lined up along the outside wall in the back were four young helmeted adventurers holding court in one of the booths I love that. This combines Stingray Afternoons and Nights in White Castle, hanging out in a burger joint, having ridden your bike there. That's fantastic. Perfect. Uh, this is in a, from Bob in Manchester, New Hampshire, so I'm assuming this was in New Hampshire. Three, due to the challenges of life, AAU usually results in a divide-and-conquer approach to our youngest daughter's AAU travels. My wife and I were reunited this week for the return of our eldest to Ithaca College for her junior year. First thing Mom said when we got in the car was, can't we listen to that Rebecca Lobo podcast? 
Thanks for the pod, Bob's. Yours, Bob, from Manchester, New Hampshire. Yay. You're saying yay because she referred to it as... The Rebecca, Rebecca Lobo's podcast. Yay. <laughs> well, this as your sidekick, I want to set up um, sufficiently the new Tom, Dick, and Harry song, Knights in White Castle. This is uh, Tom Russian, my brother, on lead vocals. Harold Markley, who you all know as Hari from Tom, Dick, and Hari. Jim Eubanks, uh, who, who's uh, the lyricist on this, and the lyrics are phenomenal, so listen to that. Craig Bartlett. Jack Malone is the drummer, and as Tom texted me this morning, Matt Healy played horns as the studio fourth dick, because ordinarily there are three dicks in Tom, Dick, and Harry. And they got somebody to be the fourth dick yeah, to play so, the horns. Without further ado, in its entirety, the world premiere of Tom, Dick, and Harry's Knights in White Castle. Thank you to Denny Gallagher. Enjoy this. We'll see you next week. Waking from a deep and restful Right.